This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, January 14th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Thanks for spending time with us. On today's show, the music of One Penny Shy. The duo plays Sunday at the Fayetteville Public Library. We talked with them last night about that show and about their music. That's in today's second half hour. And in about four minutes, Michael Tilley talks with us about dogs, a big road, and more of what he paid attention to in the news this week. Wednesday's high mark of a single-day new infection of COVID-19 in Arkansas is already being eclipsed by yesterday's report from the Arkansas Department of Health. The ADH counted nearly 13,000 new cases yesterday with 18 additional deaths added to the state's total. 9,372 Arkansans have died from COVID-19 since March 2020. Active cases spiked again with a net gain of more than 8,200, meaning there are more than 79,000 active cases in the state today. And hospitalizations increased by 66 meaning there are more than 1,200 virus patients in Arkansas hospitals. Hospitals in Benton and Washington counties now are caring for 132 virus patients, an increase of 11 people in the last 24 hours. The counties combined for almost 2,400 new cases in the last 24 hours, including 1,453 new cases diagnosed in Washington County. The state of Oklahoma yesterday counted more than 10,000 new cases of COVID-19 and 53 newly confirmed deaths from the virus. The Arkansas Center for Health Improvement says 97% of Arkansas school districts have at least 50 or more known new cases of COVID-19 per 10,000 residents. That's 226 of 234 districts, about the same number as a similar report that was issued earlier this week, but 88 more districts compared to this time last week. And Rogers Public School implemented remote learning today for all classes from pre-K through 12th grade because of staffing shortages in-person classes scheduled to resume on Tuesday after the King holiday. The University of Arkansas will host a town hall-style meeting next week as in-person classes resume. Registration for the meeting, which is taking place Wednesday from noon to 1 at the Faulkner Performing Arts Center and virtually, is required. Suggestions for topics of discussion can be made when registering. Interim Chancellor Charles Robinson will participate, as will several health-related officials, including Dr. Huda Sharaf, the medical director of the Pat Walker Health Center on campus. Arkansas Razorback men's head basketball coach Eric Musselman will not be on the sidelines for the next couple of games after undergoing shoulder surgery yesterday. The surgery was required. The coach suffered an injury in a collision with a player during a practice. Assistant coach Keith Smart, who has head coaching experience in the NBA, will fill in during Musselman's absence. University of Arkansas gymnastics team a few hours away from its first ever event in Bud Walton Arena. Arkansas, ranked 15th in the country, will host number 8 Auburn tonight with the first vault scheduled for 7.30. All of Arkansas's previous home meets have been inside the older, smaller Barnhill Arena. Arkansas began the 2022 season a week ago tonight with a win over Ohio State. This weekend's Wonders of Winter Wildlife event at Hobbs State Park near Rogers is postponed because of inclement weather. The events, including a live Birds of Prey demonstration, will now be held February 5th. The National Weather Service is issuing a winter weather advisory for eastern Oklahoma and northwest Arkansas beginning at 3 Saturday morning and lasting through midnight 
Saturday. Snow accumulation expected to be between less than an inch to two inches with wind gusts of up to 35 miles per hour. Lows tonight are expected to be around freezing. Tomorrow, highs from 36 to 39. Saturday night, lows from 20 to 24 with wind chills in northwest Arkansas between 9 and 14. This is Ozarks at Large. With me on the phone from his office in Fort Smith is Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics. Michael, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm glad we can talk before the, the big winter blizzard wipes us all out. <laughs> well, I know there are certain people that consider it isn't winter until there's snow. So, okay, let's have a couple of inches <laughs> yeah. of snow and then move on to baseball season. That's my... Uh... Yeah. There you go. Let's talk about dogs. I love talking about dogs, and you have an article about a possible future additional dog park in Fort Smith. Yeah, you know, um, you can uh, you can gerrymander uh, Quorum Court districts. You can do the public's business and the private. You can break Freedom of Information Act laws, but don't you dare take away our dog park. <laughs> exactly. Uh, them, them, them. There is fighting words. Um, which is what happened, um, and this is all tied to Fort Smith being selected for that foreign military sales program where they're going to bring the F-35, F-16s, the Singapore Air Force in, which is going to be three or four years out. Uh, but beginning in April, uh, the airport um, is going to begin extending the runway. They're part of that, bringing that um, military foreign military pilot training center here, they had to extend the runway which cut right into the dog park that existed at the east end of the runway. Well, um, citizens raised holy hell about that. Um, the city offered a very small little piece of property out at Chaffee Crossing. Mind you, this the park they're getting rid of is, is many acres. It has a pond. I mean, it's a large piece of property. The first time I saw it several years ago, I expected it to be, you know, maybe the size of a couple, two or three backyards, but it's a very nice uh, piece of property. And, 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 and I don't want to make light of it, but it is a great amenity and you can go there almost any day while well, you could before it was closed and you would see a good number of folks there. It was being well used. So these folks, when the park was closed, um, they did not like it and they demanded action. And so, to the city's credit, they're working with the um, Sebastian County, uh, and they're working with Fort Chaffee Redevel Redevelopment Authority. They've found about tw a 22-acre area that has um, some of the same amenities, a lot of trees, uh, a water feature um, that will that they're going to try to pull together. It's not a done deal yet, um, but they're working on it, and they hope to have an agreement in place soon and, and have the, um, uh, park, uh, open for citizens and their pets by spring. So, uh, again, it's, this kind of cracks me up. I, I don't, again, I don't want to diminish this. It's a great amenity for the citizens, but 
Um, it was interesting to see the city uh, respond to this so quickly uh, when, when on some other things, <laughs> they're not quite as uh, quick to jump. <laughs> well, speaking of things that take time, I-49, which which one public official who I will not name once told me I-49 is the highway of Arkansas's future and it always will be, only (laughs) (laughs) meaning that we've been talking about it for literally decades. It was a bit back in the news this the past few days. What's what's going on? Well, yeah, so um, it was back in the news for some, I think, some strange reasons. Uh, We had reported... um, Back in August and in September, back in August, Arkansas Highway Commissioner Keith Gibson talked about that the um, highway department would soon uh, begin work on extending I-49. Right now, it stops. You know, when you come, when you're going to Fayetteville or or coming back uh, from the Fort Smith area, you know, at that interchange there, I-49, I-40, they're going to extend that on south. It'll cross the river and connect just north of Barling, kind of northeast of Barling. Uh, or no, that's not true. It'll connect in Barling and Highway 22, where there's always, already an interstate that runs for a few miles through the Chaffee Crossing area down to South 71. So it would, it would be somewhat of an outer ring uh, around um, the metro area when it's complete. So, But we've reported on that, and when voters passed issue, Arkansas voters passed Issue 1, it, it set aside about $270 million for this project. And that's not going to be enough to complete it. I'm assuming they're going to get funds from other places because the bridge that, that you're building an interstate in a river bottom land, you're going to have to have some, a lot of levee work, a lot of other extraordinary work that you wouldn't normally have on, on more stable property plus a bridge. So it's going to be, I think probably considerably more than 270 million. We don't have a price estimate yet. They're still working on bridge design. But for whatever reason, the director Lori Tudor of the Highway Department made comments recently at a chamber event about this, and other members of the media just lost their minds and started reporting on it like it was a new development. Well, it's not a new development. Also, they were reporting on it as if you know we're going to be having a groundbreaking or a ribbon cutting on a new highway here in a few years. Significant construction on this is not going to begin until maybe 2025, uh, if we still have a republic by then, I guess. Uh, And the completion of the interstate um, will be at the end of the decade. And I tried to pin them down which side at the end of the decade, you know, 2029 or 2031, you know, which which is it? And I couldn't get an answer on that. And it's not their fault. They're just still in design work. Um, Another part of the project would take a two lane, just so one side of the interstate from Greenwood down to Y city, where you take the turn left to go to hot Springs. So that's another $270 million project, but I would encourage folks just to kind of calm down, slow down. It's not going to get started soon. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, it could be eight to 10 years, uh, before it's completed. Um, although that's still, I do understand there's a little bit of certainty, but we've, like I said, we've had that certainty since last August when, when discussions really started coming that, Hey, this is going to happen. Now what we don't have Kyle is there's another, there's roughly 136 miles according to the highway department of I-49 from Fort Smith down the Texas line that would really connect 
that whole New Orleans, Shreveport, Fort Smith, Kansas City connection. That's a that's got a um, a little bit pricier tag. I don't think you and I could pay for it because it's 4.1 billion uh, for that 136 miles. So that's that's the future. That's what we want to get completed. So yes, the the idea is when this is all done, it's a New Orleans to Kansas City four lanes of connectivity. Yes, and for the Fort Smith Metro, that means you you have two major U.S. interstate systems bisecting, and you can look at almost any metro area, and when they have something like that, it is a um, it's a sig- significant economic development tool uh, and attraction. Well, so eight to ten years. To put that in perspective, that's roughly the amount of time it takes to get from Russellville to Hot Springs right now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Seemingly. On a good day. (laughs) On a good day, right. All right. Uh, One more story to discuss. This is one that kind of keeps coming back. It's FOI, Freedom of Information Act, issues with the city of Fort Smith. The city prevailed in the latest uh, challenge, but there's a little bit more to the story. Yes, we've been told... um really just before our, um, well, just in the last few hours, the attorney, uh, Joey McCutcheon, who sued the city and lost, although it was very interesting, if you read the judge's ruling, the judge even um, used language that, uh, frankly, if you didn't know any better, you would thought you thought he was going to rule against the city. But um, what the city did is they, they played fast and loose with Freedom of Information Act laws in essentially voting on an agenda item outside of the public meeting, which uh, is a clear violation of the Freedom of Information Act's public meetings law. However, the city has has a very interesting take and a very interesting little twist on how they do this. So they, they don't violate the letter of the law. They do violate the spirit of the law, in my estimation. Uh, that's just my estimation. But Mr. McCutcheon, the attorney, has decided to appeal we don't have that story posted yet, but we should have it posted uh, hopefully um, later uh, Friday afternoon. All no right. later than Friday. No later. Gotcha. Michael Tilly is with Talk Business and Politics. You can read about what we've talked about and so much more at talkbusiness.net. All right, Michael, get your bread, get your milk, hunker down for the winter storm that may or may not be coming. I'm just going to get a big old pot of beans and some cornbread and kick back. I think that's, whether it snows or not, that sounds like a great thing to do. Thank you, Michael. All right. The new film adaptation of The Tragedy of Macbeth is in black and white and moral shades of gray. One of the stars is Corey Hawkins. The access and the ownership that we all should have on Shakespeare, it isn't one thing. He, he was writing for, you know, the sort of every man of it all. And Will the Gates of Hell Be Doused? Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend edition tomorrow morning from 7 to 9 on KUAF 91.3. In August, the U.S. military withdrew troops from Afghanistan, leaving the country under control of the Taliban. Since, the U.S. has evacuated nearly 75,000 people. 130 of those have made their way to Arkansas with the help of the state's sole resettlement agency, Canopy of Northwest Arkansas. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth checks in on the process with the organization's executive director, Joanna Krause. In late December, a group of nearly 30 Afghan men were gathered in a conference room inside the Jones Center in Springdale. They sat mostly silent between sips of tea and listened to staff from Canopy of Northwest Arkansas speaking through interpreters in Dari and Pashto 
walk them through the next steps of starting their life in the United States. These are just some of the 130 Afghan refugees that Canopy, the state's sole refugee agency, has resettled around the state since the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, which led to the Taliban takeover of the country last summer. Joanna Krause, director for Canopy, says the organization has had at least one family arrive in the state each week since the process began. Canopy received our first Afghan humanitarian parolee or Afghan refugee case on October 19th, and we have been receiving families, several families a week ever since. So it is an incredibly busy time for us, um, but it's been really incredible that Canopy and the greater community has been able to do this and resettle so many people. Initially, Arkansas was supposed to receive only 98 refugees, but Krause says that she and her team advocated to place more throughout the state because of the great need. Now that most of the cases have arrived, she says the work of preparing people for the challenge of starting over in a new country begins. It's been an incredibly difficult collective trauma. Some people had to you know, flee their home in the night, a place they did not want to leave. They left because, you know, there was a terrorist threat uh, that they felt, you know, endangered for themselves and their families. And fleeing to the point that some people arrived in the U.S. without shoes. You know, this is a ve- was a very, very severe, um, desperate humanitarian crisis. The onboarding process for refugees involves English language classes, job training and placement, and helping them navigate processes like medical insurance, housing, school, and just adapting to a new culture. And people have come here to Northwest Arkansas after having spent sometimes several months on military bases across the U.S. where they completed a very thorough vetting process. All of the Afghans were required to be fully vaccinated in order to depart the bases and get their immigration status um, before traveling here. So people are getting here really eager to get to work and kids are really eager to get to school. Um, The local schools have just been phenomenal. We have um, new Afghan students at three of the school districts in Northwest Arkansas and they're doing so well. The school administrators, teachers, other students have just set, shown such a warm welcome um, that it's been really, really incredible. And they are they're thriving. She says one of the next steps, and often the most important, is helping people find work. All of the Afghan evacuees are eligible to work in the U.S. You know, we have, uh, there's a worker shortage in the country, and here is an incredibly diverse, skilled um, group looking to work. Skills including physicians, lawyers, engineers, all accounting professionals, and then some people who have had, um, you know, more, more limited formal education or skill backgrounds. So very, very diverse workforce. And many, many of the Afghans also had worked alongside the U.S. government um, and the U.S. troops. So they're bringing a lot of skills here and are ready to get to work. We've had a lot of calls from employers, and we're definitely glad to receive those calls and see if we can refer qualified candidates to fill some of the openings in the region. Krause says still one major barrier for her organization is securing housing for refugees and helping families with day-to-day needs like transportation. So we're still 
um, trying to get those apartments set up, um, home furnishings, um, volunteers to help drive people around before people, you know, have those driver's licenses. Uh, so we're definitely looking for more community support there. Canopy depends on co-sponsor teams, that's community members who volunteer to check in on refugees, assist them with carpooling or providing them with help navigating things like an American grocery store. We are seeking folks who can donate furniture. I know we're needing more kitchen tables and chairs right now and help with physically setting up those apartments, you know, maybe putting together a bunk bed uh, for a family with us as kids and volunteering as co-sponsors. So that's a team of six to eight individuals who make a six-month commitment to spend some time with a family and just help them to get acquainted and navigate their new life here in Northwest Arkansas. And Krause believes that the reception from Arkansans in helping to resettle Afghan refugees has made people more receptive to welcoming refugees from all over. I definitely would like to give some credit to the leadership of Governor Hutchinson. He's been incredibly uh, supportive of the Afghan refugee resettlement and many of our elected officials as well. And I hope as more and more people are aware of refugee issues globally and locally, um, you know, come to realize that we do this because we believe in the humanity of all humans, that people deserve to live in a place where they're safe and be able to freely, um, you know, have a job that they can provide for their family so that their children can go to school. And I think we've seen more people uh, have awareness of refugee issues. She also says this moment feels like a new era for refugee resettlement in the U.S. after severe cutbacks during the Trump administration. Globally, the refugee resettlement program um, slowly start to rebuild from, you know, the U.S.'s, um, you know, kind of pull, pull back from the program over the last four years. And also, of course, covid provided a really serious impact. But in the coming year, we're projecting to have families arriving from uh, Syria, Democratic Republic of Congo, um, El Salvador, Colombia. Krause says the last Afghan refugees are expected to arrive in northwest Arkansas by the end of this month. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. The University of Arkansas Fort Smith is shifting to virtual instruction for most classes next week as COVID-19 continues to spread. This morning, Dr. Teresa Riley, UAFS Chancellor, talked with us by Zoom about that move. She says there has been an exponential growth in active cases of the virus inside the campus community. So last week, we had 13 reported positive cases on our campus. As of yesterday, when we had a meeting with our team. We had over 120 reported cases, which almost matches the entirety of last fall combined. And so you can imagine that we're looking for ways to reduce that spread and to try to keep people safe and healthy. The semester is underway. It's not optimum conditions, obviously, but now you're going to have to shift in an effort to to mitigate this spread to virtual classes for most instruction, correct? Yes, that's right. So we did begin classes on the 10th and had great mitigation plans in place and use those for cleaning and masking and yet uh, knew that, you know, we were very vulnerable at that point to very, you know, rapid spread 
of COVID. And so unfortunately, we are going to go to remote learning and work for most jobs and classes next week only in an effort to try to let people have some time to get well and return to campus on the 24th. You mentioned most. There are some classes, I guess, that that really require on in-person instruction, if at all possible. Yes, we have some students who are in clinical locations or in student teaching practicum that, you know, working within the community. Uh, We're going to have them follow the protocols at their sites. And we're also, of course, we have some face-to-face classes that we'd like to keep uh, in face-to-face delivery, such as welding or some of the the studio arts, for example. And so we we know that that will be beneficial to our students, and we believe we can achieve a, a distance and continue masking in those classes that will help with mitigation. If if someone is unsure, they'll know by, say, Monday morning whether their class is, is one of those exemptions? Yes, that's right. We have faculty and deans working to identify the classes where students should still attend in person, and students will hear about that through emails no later than Monday of next week. I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but we have the infrastructure now. You can pivot quickly. Um, so I guess that is not even a silver lining, but it's it's just a reality that this is, I guess, easier to make happen than it was two years ago. Well, absolutely. We've invested quite a bit of time, effort, and money into our technology on campus, as well as providing laptops, tablets, Wi-Fi hotspots for individuals who do have, um, you know, just limited capability of continuing to work or learn from another site. And so it's been better to have those things in place. It's certainly not something that we had hoped to utilize and did not um, want to have to move anything to mostly an online delivery or work mode for next week. But uh, knowing that it's temporary, I think is really helpful and having everybody back healthy, ready to go on the 24th, I think will be critical for student success and progression in their classes. Monday is a the, the King holiday observation, University of Arkansas, Fort Smith has panel discussions and uh, events like that to observe the holiday. Those two have been moved to virtual events? Yes, we certainly wouldn't want to put our community at risk through events that, um, you know, that we want to host and actually really are focused on others and how do we serve and educate others. And so in that vein, we did move our uh, community panel and breakfast to be virtual. So no breakfast, It'll be eating your own at home, but being able to log in from anywhere actually gives us a better opportunity to share our messages and educate people far and wide. What will you do as next week progresses to monitor to make sure you can come back to in-person on the 24th? Well, we're continuing to do some pretty dramatic cleaning, as we normally do, but you can imagine it's um, something that without people utilizing spaces, it's easier uh, to keep things clean and disinfected. We will be having meetings with our senior team that includes administrators, but obviously needs to include and does faculty, staff, student representation to make sure that we're aware of any implications of decisions. Uh, We will continue our on-campus COVID testing with our student health clinic. So our employees and students can be tested for free on campus. That will, between that and uh, reports with our state, we'll have a pretty good idea of how our efforts are being helpful, but also we'll just continue to communicate with our students and our employees to make sure that we are um, 
figuratively taking their temperatures and that we know how they're feeling about being back to campus. I, I know that they want to be here. There's just no question we want to be together. And so I think they'll all go and do the right things, hand washing, wearing masks, trying to limit their exposure outside of the workplace or learning locations so that they know we can come back safely on the 24th. Dr. Teresa Riley is the chancellor of the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, and she talked with us from her office via Zoom this morning about the move to mostly virtual instruction next week at UAFS. Shiloh Museum of Ozark History in Springdale presents Seen Through Her Wardrobe, Glimpses of Annabelle Searcy. Annabelle Applegate Searcy was one of many women exercising their independence at the turn of the 20th century. Through journals, letters, photos, and more, her life is pieced together. ShilohMuseum.org or 750-8165 for information. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, January 22nd at Walton Arts Center, featuring the Arkansas premiere of Heather Schmidt's Piano Concerto No. 4, Phoenix Ascending, along with Marquez's iconic Danzon No. 2 and Sibelius's Second Symphony. Tickets available at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Christopher Schulte, an associate professor of art education and assistant director of the School of Art at the University of Arkansas, has founded and is directing the new Center for the Study of Childhood Art. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, the center levels the theoretical playing field occupied by both children and adult artists. Christopher Schulte is passionate about supporting and cultivating child artists. That interest is what spurred him to propose the first-ever Center for the Study of Childhood Art in the U.S. In the University of Arkansas School of Art, after joining the faculty in 2019, he began to formulate a plan for this center. The idea that art making in children's lives is in large part a source of amusement is quite common. Uh, it assumes that what children do, in this case their art making, is not facilitated with purpose. That children do not engage in creative work or aspire to cultivate artistic and play-based practices um, that are serious, that are intentional, in addition to, say, being amusing or pleasurable. Schulte says child art is not frivolous, but should be recognized as a critical and generative practice in the everyday lives and experiences of children. For example, art enables children to make sense of social and cultural worlds they participate in and contribute to. Art enables children to circle back to aspects of their daily experiences that struck them as interesting or curious, or that they found to be difficult to understand or challenging to embrace. Art enables children to negotiate and hold space for difference. Art enables children to establish an attentive and generative orientation to traditional and non-traditional materials and tools. Like drawing with mud and sticks on cardboard. Art is also a social practice, one that children take up in the company of peers and other interested adults, intimately negotiated in context with others, with objects and events. The Center for the Study of Childhood Art is an unfolding division of the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences School of Art with grant funding. The school is undergoing major facilities expansion, including construction of the 154,000-square-foot Wingate Art and Design Center in South Fayetteville, part of the Art Corridor. 
as assistant director of the School of Art, Schulte is instrumental in developing new advanced level courses. The School of Art, and then specifically the Art Ed program at the University of Arkansas, is in the process of building a num- uh, two graduate programs. Uh, the Master of Arts in Art Education program, which is scheduled to begin fall 22. And we're also beginning to work on a PhD program, uh, which is obviously still a few, a few years out. But I think the hope is that, you know, our, the Art Ed program and the School of Art will become an international destination for the study and practice of art. And from, from a K through 12 perspective, we're very much committed to reconceptualizing what K through 12 art education can be. Uh, not only looking at existing practices and histories uh, related to that work, but also thinking about ways in which that work might become more inclusive, uh, might provide opportunities and access for individuals who have not previously had access, and the ways in which our teachers need to be more responsive, for example, to the complexities of the time in which we're now living. The Center for the Study of Childhood Art, he says, is dedicated to critical and reconceptualist approaches. That means we are working against traditional perspectives, which have a tendency to reduce how children's practices are understood, that have a tendency to maybe marginalize children and their work and their communities, um, and that have a tendency, for example, to treat children's ideas and expertise as somehow being less sophisticated or less impactful than the expertise that adults offer. The center acknowledges that child artists are essentially equal to adult artists. Center for Study of Childhood Art students, he says, will engage with leading scholar practitioners from around the world, visiting faculty as well as local communities. You know, we are constantly able to reach out and the work that we do is public facing, but that also has a capacity to hold space for the community to be present and to participate in the work that we're doing. For example, a year ago, Schulte launched a childhood art speaker series inviting leading scholars to share new research. Some of it may be child art adjacent. So maybe, for example, language and literacy scholars Uh, play or performance scholars. Um, It could be designers and and curators um, who are thinking in critical ways about historical and contemporary childhood. The Center's speaker series is recorded to be made available virtually for free. A childhood art podcast is also planned, which will feature in-depth conversations and personal experiences. The Center this fall also rolled out the Sketchpad, So the Sketchpad is a a free public-facing program intended to provide um, experimental and, uh, I think, innovative arts experiences for children and youth uh, in Northwest Arkansas. Long-term, it will be scaled up for now, uh, in part because our facilities are are in progress still, as you you likely know. But... um, you know, we're piloting it with homeschool families at the time, at this present time. And the focus is really on the courses or the workshops are taught by advanced art ed students. Future sketchpads, he says, will be mentored by the center's graduate students and faculty. And so in addition to becoming a kind of um, 
testing ground for innovative and inclusive uh, arts educational practice, it will also become a site for research where graduate students from around the world who are interested in, for example, the study of childhood art, but maybe more broadly curriculum initiatives or um, a, a wide range of other concerns or matters that connect to arts instruction or arts practice, they'll come to the university and they will not only gain teaching experience and supervision and mentorship experience, but they'll be carefully mentored as researchers within the context of that space. And so for me, it's a place where research, teaching, and community service become entwined. The Center for the Study of Childhood Art will be fully culturally competent because historically, Schulte says, the realm of child art has not been diverse. For young people whose bodies and lives are constantly marginalized or systematically excluded from consideration, art making provides a tremendous opportunity for those children to restate the importance of their own being, to be able to articulate the complexities of their own life experience, of the community they are part of, this spring semester, the Center for the Study of Childhood Art is providing financial support for emerging and established scholar practitioners, including faculty at the University of Arkansas, whose work makes timely and important contributions to the discipline. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This is Ozarks at Large with me on the phone from her office, her home office in Bella Vista, is Becca Martin-Brown, features editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Becca, welcome back to the show. Unbelievable. Unbelievable we're about to have the conversation again. But anything I tell you may or may not happen. I mean, things are getting postponed and canceled. And uh, anything, as Becca just said, that she mentions, you should check twice before going to, just to see if it's still happening. We have a story running Sunday about the show Josie and Grace that's supposed to be coming next week to the Faulkner Center on the UA campus in Fayetteville, and it's been postponed till March. Story was already written. Hole was already there. So you can read it now and remember till March. Cut it out. Put it on your fridge and, you know, be ready in about six or seven weeks. There you go. As far as I know, all the things that I'm going to mention are actually happening. Okay. Okay. Tomorrow night... Nice and early for those of us who like to go to bed early. Ozark Mountain Hoedown Music Theater in Eureka Springs is hosting a preliminary audition for America's Got Talent. This is preliminary, so if you advance from here, you're still not quite on the show, but you do move up to another round? I think what this actually means is that the producers of America's Got Talent are going to see... Mm. Either be there to see this or see video of it. How many people will we see on stage? They had 35 the last time I checked. All right. I think that's why they're starting at 5 o'clock. I guess so. But what a cool evening in Eureka Springs. And the money, some of the proceeds go to veterans. Good. Can't lose. 5 o'clock tomorrow night at the Ozark Mountain Hoedown Music Theater on Van Buren Street in Eureka Springs. Tickets are $15 for adults, and you can find out more at the OzarkMountainHoedown.com. Okay. 
big news in the River Valley is that Fort Smith Little Theater has announced its 75th season. They are the longest tenured such theater group in the state, I believe. As far as anybody knows, yes. They were founded in 1947 and survived, God love them, survived the pandemic thus far when they were had to shut down for a long time. So in celebration of their anniversary season, they're doing some shows that have been popular at FSLT before. Okay. They're going to open the season in February with Smoke on the Mountain, which is the musical story of a gospel sing at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in 1938. And it was last on the FSLT stage in 1998. Next is A Southern Exposure, which is a new show that was on the schedule for 2020 and got canceled. Gotcha. That's at the end of March. Then Ken Ludwig's Moon Over Buffalo. And it was staged in 1999 at FSLT. And then the summer musical, which is new to FSLT, will be Annie. That'll happen in July. Then Philadelphia Story, which I haven't seen on stage in ages. I... And it, I was going to say, I'm only familiar with the film version. Yeah, I've seen it on stage, but I think it was at University Theater in Fayetteville about 100 years ago. <laughs> and I could be wrong about that. It was on the FSLT stage in 1957 and in 1981, and it'll be back in September. Then a new play by Jamie Lambden Bowen called Coffee Shop. When a coffee shop owner asks her business-savvy sister to help her increase business, Sparks fly. Well, yeah, two sisters together. Of course they do. <laughs> That's in November. And then they have two off-season productions that are not part of your season ticket purchase. The Whole Shebang, which is in April, and an old-time radio Christmas, too, which will be in December. And those shows are $7 at the door. And you can go to FSLT.org and find out all about their season ticket packages. And they have their very own theater uh, where they make their productions. Right. And survived because they have some very lovely supporters. Yes. Tonight, if you're in Rogers, pop by Arkansas Public Theater at 7 o'clock because they're announcing their season 37, which starts with the summer musical. But I can't tell you what it is, but it's a really good one. It'll happen at the end of July. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And then they'll tell you everything else. It includes a world premiere. It includes another favorite musical, a new musical, and a play that the plot centers around a dog. Okay. All right. And you can find out more after tonight at ArkansasPublicTheater.org or check out Sunday's What's Up when we'll break the news that is currently embargoed and it's killing me. Also today, tickets go on sale for Tab Benoit, who is coming to Temple Live in Fort Smith. Right. March 10th. Right. Love him. Native of Homa, Louisiana, and he's always a great performer. And does some wonderful... I saw a film that he did at the aquarium in New Orleans several years ago, talking about the importance of the swamps. Mm -hmm. He's super cool. And then tickets also go on sale today for the bandwagon tour with Miranda Lambert and Little Big Town that'll be at the Amp in May. 
Yeah, not. I mean, May's going to be here before you know it. Oh, I hope so. Do you promise? I do. I do. And the Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band has announced a winter spring tour that includes stops April 13th in Oklahoma City, April 14th in Tulsa, and April 16th in Springfield. And you can find out about that at BigDamnBand.com. And there's supposed to be a Mountain Street stage this Sunday at the Fayetteville Public Library with One Penny Shy. That's at 2 o'clock. I love Mountain Street Stage. I hope it's happening, but check at faylib.org. And and hang on for about two more minutes, and we'll talk to One Penny Shy. Yay! Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Becca, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk again next Friday. Absolutely. Take care out there, guys. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Little Guys Movers, a community-oriented company rooted in creating better lives for customers and employees alike, providing jobs and serving customers for over 28 years. More than just a moving company, littleguys.com for information. The duo One Penny Shy will help the Fayetteville Public Library bring in the first month of 2022 with a Sunday afternoon performance scheduled, weather and everything else permitting, for 2 to 4 Sunday afternoon. The performance comes after a summer release of a five-song EP, Grown, featuring songs that seem created exactly for soothing frayed nerves during a pandemic. Last night, we reached Becky Adams and Jacob Campbell to ask about forming their duo during the pandemic. I used to have my my own project just under the name of Becky, and I, I don't know, during the pandemic, I was really inspired to kind of tap back into my more folksy roots, um, slightly less pop-driven. It's definitely still an undertone there. Um, but I just, I felt really inclined to, to do that. And of course my partner Jacob was there to, to back me up of course, cause he's a fantastic I'm the backup guy. <laughs> no. And he's become a full on duo. He is a part of this. He builds these songs up for me and I couldn't ask for a better partner in this. <laughs> and, and Jacob, you're quite the musician. I know that you've, you've been with different bands and played with different folks. Um, what's the experience been like for you in, in this uh, configuration? It's nice to make music with somebody who is a partner also in your life. You know, we, it's, it's, it's easy for us to get together and, and sort of put melodies together. And like, it's, you know, the musician struggle is always like, when can we all get together and rehearse at the same time? Uh, and, you know, if you live together, it's a lot easier. <laughs> So does that mean that, um, do you ever talk about sharing the same muse? I mean, you're in the same household, you're, you're, you're together. Are you inspired by some of the same things? I think so. I mean, I'll say I'm inspired a lot by Becky, you know, she, she starts, it seems like she can just pull these things sort of out of the air, uh, lyrically and, you know, musically as well in a way that, is more difficult for me. But the good thing about our sort of working relationship is that she can bring me these ideas, you know, and we can kind of shop them up together and like, you know, breathe some some life into them that may not otherwise be there. You know, Becky always gives me great stuff and then we can make it even better, I think, when we come together. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you about some of the songs that are on Grown because I just fell in love with this EP. Oh, thank, thank you, Kyle. Um, uh, close the door. We were frozen in time.
time that night we were sleeping with our crowns on in half life beautiful song what what's the inspiration for that oh of course uh close the door i have it's probably been four years since i initially wrote that song and it has grown so much um of course it comes from young love you know i guess just like learning my way like how to navigate relationships as a young adult right so it comes from not really knowing where to you know where my footing was in that world and trying to uh figure out exactly how to uh just be with another person you know it's it's one of those things that's very difficult to learn when you're just getting into the world um of course this was prior to jacob so. <laughs> <laughs> If One Penny Shy had formed, say, in 2017 or 2018 or any year, really, before 2020, you'd probably have several dozen scores of live performances under your belts. Now, yeah. I, I know that you have performed live a little bit, but it hasn't been quite as many mm-hmm. as you'd like, I bet. No, absolutely not. We've been trying to be careful, you know, as best we can. And it's, you know, I know all, all of my musician friends, um, it's it's been tough to, to navigate the performance life with COVID. You know, it's do you want to do the gig? What kind of safety precautions are they taking? What kind of safety precautions can you take? You know, is it at what point is it not safe to get together at all? You know, and so we've been navigating that stuff. Uh, but like Becky said earlier, you know, it's it's given us a unique opportunity to turn inward a little bit and kind of you know, especially for me, like I've, I perform all the time, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much a full-time deal. And so I taking a little bit of a break from that while it has been weird and has been bad, you know, it's also been good because we've been able to, like I said, turn inward and, you know, shop some of these songs up and really kind of focus on the vision for what we want to play rather than just having to be playing all the time. Mm-hmm. Let me ask about Lullaby because Lullaby just seems like, if you're on edge, if you're frenzied a little bit, let's hear this song, and it it will do a little bit to take the edge off. Inside in your pillow and fall with the dawn. I'll be home before too long. Reach for the meadow and roll in the I actually did write that one during the pandemic. Oh, okay. Um, as a, yeah, so I, I definitely blended together songs. Um, I think two of them I wrote during the pandemic, and I believe it was Button Up Coat mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Lullaby. I don't think that's wrong. Um, but Lullaby was like, I want to say very close to before like we recorded the EP. Um, and it's one that I honestly don't perform as often as I should. Um because it's, it's just from a very quiet personal place of just soothing exactly that. Like um, the pandemic had me feeling very overwhelmed. Um, there was so much going on and just exactly that. Like I, I wanted that place of calm and like, what does that place of calm look like to me? And that's where Lullaby was born. So, Well, then let me ask about Dublin because Dublin seems to be this, how would I describe it? I think it is this um, reasonable, sensible 
yet aspirational song. Like, yeah, this is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And this is how I think I might get there. That's how I interpret it. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that so much. I, uh, I went to Dublin um, when I was a senior in college. And it was just one of those places that I felt so at home. And um, it really just inspired me to write. And it, that song was, um, that song was born pretty much, I want to say, within that year after visiting. I just kept kind of humming to myself and thinking about it. And I was like, I want to just get these feelings down. So yeah. When I grow older, I want a house that's built of stone. When I grow older, I want one place to call my home. I'll rest my head upon a pillow by the bank of the river as it flows from the night into the day. The river as it flows from the night. Becky Adams and Jacob Campbell are one penny shy. They're scheduled to play at the Fayetteville Public Library Sunday afternoon at 2. Their EP is titled Grown. We talked via Zoom last night. That's trumpeter Terrell Stafford in the background. And I'm Robert Ginsburg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from Terrell Stafford as well as music from John Schofield, Jackie McLean, Billie Holiday, and much more. Shades of Jazz, every Friday and Saturday right here on KUAF. Shades of Jazz with Robert Ginsburg tonight from 10 to midnight on KUAF 91.3, then tomorrow from 11 to 1 on KUAF 3. You can find KUAF 3 for free on your HD radio by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF 3 or by using the free KUAF app. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Elkins. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics, and Becca Martin-Brown, the Features Editor with the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Our theme written and performed by Daryl Sean. From the Anthony and Susanoi News Studio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Please be safe. We'll talk again soon.